Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Place for Truth. Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the... Brief introduction. Um, we've called these meetings, again, like I've already said, A Place for Truth. Um, a couple um, presumptive... Um, beliefs about all of our speakers here. Um, we are all hold to what we call reformed theology, which in a nutshell is the belief that we want to, we believe that scripture speaks more than just a minimalistic, how do we get saved? But scripture has maximum revelation from God to us today. And we want to maximize what we can know and learn. We also believe that God is king over all, including earthly governments that scripture is sufficient for all we need in life and godliness. Tonight, we've invited four guys to address us on this topic. Um, Dr. Andrew Sandlin, Dr. Ardell Kennedy, Dave, Reverend David Smith, and Reverend Robert Dahlberg. Now, what you're going to notice is they're all, they're, they're from different denominations, um, Dr. Sandlin and Dr. Kennedy have been professors and pastors. Um, Bob Dahlberg is uh, part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and David Smith is our resident Presbyterian, which we are so excited to have you, uh, David. Uh, well, I'll try to keep the inside joking to a minimal after that. Um, but one of the reasons why we invited these guys, which is the impetus of any of the events we do, comes from the passage, Psalm 119.63, my companions are those who fear the Lord, who walk according to his precepts. We also have scripture that says, if we walk with the wise, we will grow wise. So I've invited men who uh, have been in the ministry a long time, simply for the fact that they are worth listening to. They have contended for the truth through many, many years and decades, both building up the church of God and also fighting against falsehood and teaching and, and false teaching. So this is nothing new to them. I hope tonight that you give them um, the due respect of uh, hearing what they have to say. And we are here specifically to talk about an issue that is prevalent. I don't think it needs a lot of introduction. You can call it wokeism. Uh, we call it this new social justice movement, critical race theory, cultural Marxism, um, all the stuff that we've seen go on since in, in our nation in the last years, the divisions. Um, also, obviously, uh, exacerbated two months ago with the killing of George Floyd here in Minnesota. A month ago, we did a conversation with some of these gentlemen about how to view these new racial tensions. Um, and tonight, we're going to do a little bit of a different, we're not going to repeat all the same things, although I'm sure some of those things will come back. But after the end of last month's meeting, not only in the meeting itself, but on Facebook afterwards, we had a number of questions from some of you and from others uh, all over our nation and even all over the world uh, who, who are in agreement with us that the new social justice wokeism is nothing less than that which is to be condemned. It's an enemy of the gospel. Uh, Galatians chapter one, uh, we are to contend for the truth against uh, this, this falsehood. And, and But the question, we're, we're more pastoral questions. What do I do if my pastors, my church leaders are encouraging me to read White Fragility, for example, or all of a sudden I'm starting to hear these kind of dividing uh, type sermons um, 
And what do I do when the wokeness infiltrates the church? I'm, I'm rightfully concerned about that, but what do I do? What's my recourse? And uh, do I leave? Do I stay? How do I contend for the truth? And I think it's, it, it, you know, um, we've all seen that certainly a number of uh, Christian leaders that we've uh, before have really respected have seemed to go down this trail and how do we view them and what do we do with all the pastoral concerns? So with that, I think that'll be my introduction. Um, I'm going to maybe turn it over to Dr. Sandlin and you can begin. And, and then uh, with, with Bob and Dave and Ardell, um, just kind of anybody that wants, of you four that want to jump in, um, we can start with some questions or you can start by just sharing a little bit about your concerns and what do we do when we go down this path? Thanks so much, Eric. I'm Andrew Sandlin and I lead the Center for Cultural Leadership, Christian Educational Foundation designed to influence Christians to influence culture in distinctively Christian ways. Uh, so uh, what is wokeness? It's just sort of a <laughs> grammatically incorrect way of putting uh, a result of critical race theory. You may have heard of that. Critical race theory is an intellectual uh, philosophy, uh, part of an ideology, uh, which really is the racial component of critical theory, which is a part of a larger school uh, of uh, cultural Marxism. Don't worry, I'm not going to go far into the weeds <laughs> too much on that. Uh, but to get right to the heart of it, uh, basically it was developed in the uh, critical race theory in the 70s. And uh, it's essentially the idea that all of uh, society should be uh, investigated through the lens of racial oppression. There was a fine uh, book written several years ago by an Australian scholar, Kenneth Minogue. I think it was called The Servile Mind. He used a, a nice expression, the uh, oppression liberation nexus. That is, everything in society is to be interpreted in terms of oppression and liberation. That's an old Marxist idea. But uh, critical race theory and wokeism is essentially that, uh, the, the oppression uh, and liberation thesis as applied to uh, race. So this is where we get the idea of, uh, of structural racism. Uh, interesting idea that racism is just sort of floating around everywhere and in societies. Uh, if anybody, by the way, ever uses that term, you might want to ask them to define it. It's notoriously difficult to define a structural racism. People will say, well, that means that everything in society is racist. Okay, are you saying then that law enforcement is inherently racist, that to be a police officer is to be racist? Well, they would reply, well, no, but it means like police department. So it means that to be in law enforcement is to be racist. Well, no, not quite that. It's just the way it is in America. It just sort of tends to be that way. So you would say then every department, they would say no. So you see, even in that little investigation, it's very hard to to say what structural racism is. But the very notion of structural racism is essentially a culturally Marxist category. Now, as I understand it, Eric, what we're talking about uh, tonight more is not so much this in society, but in the church. Is that correct? Woke is mostly yeah. in the church. Yeah, I think the, the distinctions is always I want to make is, okay, if we start to identify or start to embrace some of those ideas that there's inherent racism, what does it do for us and what does it do to us? Why are we concerned about this yeah. in the church? Why is this a big deal? Why do we biblically say, why do we spend as much time as, as you guys do? And certainly some of us now do opposing this. Yeah, great question. I've got a good answer. I've been praying about that, thinking about that today in preparation for this, Eric, and, and the rest of you. I've been rereading the book of Galatians. 
And uh, something struck me about this, and I'll defer in a few minutes to Dr. Canada. He's the New Testament scholar. I'm more in systematics and culture. But I get the impression reading the book of Galatians that what Paul is saying is this sort of racialized, and that's really what it is, this sort of racialized gospel the Judaizers were teaching is something that Paul found to be abhorrent. In fact, I believe there's nowhere else in Paul's writings anywhere that he opposes any teaching with the force that he does the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Galatian air. And though it's not identical to today's wokeness, I, I do believe that there's a strong parallel adding to the gospel. There are racial elements that, in this case, the black race is to be privileged and the white race is somehow to be deprivileged. And by the way, it'd be the same if it were like the white race were to be privileged, sort of a, a white racism that, of course, also would be erroneous. But in answer specifically to your question, Eric, I'm coming increasingly to believe that this is nothing more or less this wokeness in the church than really a false gospel. And if Paul were here today, uh, he would uh, oppose it with nearly the same vehemence as he opposed to Galatianism. So I think that is what is at stake today in the church. Ardell or okay, Bob David, will, anything you want to add? I'll pick that up since um, since Andrew kind of handed it off to me. Uh, one one of the things that um, that folks who are woke, I call them the woke folks, <clears throat> in the church do, is they they run to the scriptures to uh, locate passages of the script in this within the scriptures to support their case, such as Galatians. They, they run to Galatians 2, they go to Galatians 3, um, such as, um, and, and, and what's interesting is that many of the folks who are now woke with regard to race, if we can use that term, are uh, running to Galatians 3.28, um, very much like uh, the woke people did earlier who were woke over gender or sex. Uh, So that that feminists in the church have long gone to Galatians 3.28, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, whether Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. And, uh, And what's interesting is that these folks who are getting woke with regard to race issues, uh, many of them are not egalitarians. Many of them are complementarians. And they're running to the same passage that the feminists used earlier. And of course, if we read the passage, actually, it, the passage doesn't t- talk about equality. It talks about oneness, unity. It's actually an abuse of the passage to use the passage to argue for equality. Equality isn't the issue. Um, equality is, is endemic to humanity by virtue of creation. We are all made in the image and likeness of God. We're equal in that regard, which of course is exactly what our founding fathers recognized. We're all created equally for God. But Galatians 3.28 is about unity, the unity of the Jew and Gentile, the unity of the male and female, 
the unity of the slave and the free. And notice, Paul does not use that passage or make that passage work, do the work that anybody's trying to make it do. That is, obliterate um, differences among us. So the passage is abused regularly. Now, I didn't want to camp out on Galatians 3.28, but I, but I think it's important for us to get that uh, behind us. But I do want to take a, take a look briefly at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is a passage that deals with an issue that was arising in the early church in Jerusalem among Jewish Christians. They're all Jewish. And this passage is also exploited and used and abused by these woke folks as proof of their argument and a proof of their position. But of course, it doesn't, it doesn't support their case at all because, because the issue in Acts chapter 6 has nothing to do with race. Nothing. Right. Because they're all Jews. All of these folks in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem are Jews who are in the church. But the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews are divided culturally. So that there's a cultural matter, but it isn't a matter of race. And so, so the early church had to deal with a, a division over culture. And how did they deal with it? Well, they appointed six men as deacons to oversee the distribution of goods, particularly to the, um, to the Greek-speaking widows, um, and see to it that they are cared for and, and not, uh, not rejected or not overlooked. So Acts 6 is a major passage that woke folks are using. As a matter of fact, at our institution and several other Christian institutions, there is a program called Acts 6. It's a scholarship program, and, and this passage is the basis for it, a scholarship program for so-called minorities. It turns out that virtually all of these minorities are, are, have dark skin color, black skin. Um, and, and so the passage doesn't actually support the very, the very cause that these folks are employing and, uh, and embracing. Now, similarly, I would make the case that Paul's dealing with the Galatians really isn't about race. Um, I, think, I think it's easy for us to, uh, to read that back onto the text. But if we go to Galatians chapter 2, where Paul is dealing with his uh, confrontation with the apostle Peter in Antioch, Peter, when the uh, Jews who are sent down from Jerusalem by James come to the church, Peter begins to withdraw from the Gentiles and eat with the Jews only. And, um, and Paul confronts him about that. Now, it's easy for us to think that it is an, is an issue of race, which, which, of course, is exactly what the woke folks are telling us. That it's that there, you see, that's, that's racism. And again, I would argue 
that if it were about race, it would have been written differently by Paul. It seems to me that what we're, what we're dealing with here is culture. And again, what is, what is, what is a very crucial ingredient or element of culture? It's religious beliefs. And so what Paul is addressing when he confronts Peter isn't really an issue of race. It's an issue of culture. And the point that Paul is making is that Jesus Christ has come and he has rendered culture irrelevant. And the, those cultural divides that, that stand between the Jew and the Gentile are now rendered irrelevant so that he has broken down the middle wall of partition, which, of course, God himself erected. And the issue is not, the issue in Galatians 2 is not, Paul, Peter, now be nice to the Gentiles. Regard them as your equals. No, the point that Paul is making is this. Peter, if you go down that pathway and you separate yourself from the Gentiles over food prohibitions of the old covenant, you will perish. That's the point that Peter's, that Paul is making. It's, and that's the issue in Ephesians 2. The middle wall of partition is not about being nice to one another. It's a matter of salvation. Right. And so, and so the, I, think, I think that the issues that we need to address are very different from the ones that are presented to us as though those were the issues. Race is not really the issue, it seems to me, in the early church dealing with <coughs> the relationship between Jews and Gentiles now under the new covenant. There was a culture that was built up around the old covenant itself, and that culture was divinely authorized. And now the new culture is divinely authorized, and the old culture is obliterated. The law isn't obliterated. The covenant, the covenant itself is changed, and the culture that that covenant uh, imposed has now been uh, obliterated, so that there's a new culture. And that new culture, of course, there is, there is um, continuity, but there's also discontinuity with the old. So that's how, it's, how it seems to me that we need to recognize that what's going on in, uh, in these passages to which our woke folks are constantly appealing. My question, Ardell, would be for that, why? Why are they appealing to that? What is wrong with the church today that the woke is saying, we get it now. This is the missing ingredient. They appeal to scripture because they think that they're, they're, they're convinced, of course, as, as professing Christians, that the scriptures somehow are our authority. And so they have to appeal to to the scriptures in order to kind of convince and persuade the rest of us. But of course, they never really, they never really do develop 
arguments that are persuasive. They simply, they simply impose these passages. I mean, I've heard many, many sermons on these passages going back 30 years. And, and these passages are expounded by these individuals uh, in an, in an impo impose, imposing kind of way. And you're just, it's, you're just expected to embrace it as it's expounded by them. And if you, if you push back and disagree with them, well, obviously, you've got a problem. And, and of course, the, the basic problem that you have is you're a racist. So it's, it's, a, um, it's, it's one of the tricks that has been used and exploited for all these years by, by these folks. Notice if you if you read any if you read any review, I haven't read the book, I'm not going to because I've read too many reviews already. But Robin D'Angelo, she doesn't she doesn't mount an argument, she just makes assertions. And this is and this is the nature of the whole argument. I, I've been dealing with this for 30 years. They don't mount arguments, they don't develop arguments to persuade, they simply impose and make assertions. And, and they do that with the scriptures as well. And of course, they have to find some authority on which to uh, ground their assertions. So they use the scriptures. Eric, the really uh, pernicious element of this is that it's an example of, of theological syncretism. Uh, be one thing if they lay the Bible aside and the faith aside, but it, this has gone on a in theological liberalism for a long time, but particularly in the 20th century, grabbing onto some secular philosophy and trying to uh, augment it with the Bible, trying to attach it to the Bible. Uh, that's black liberation theology and just regular sort of economic liberation theology, feminist theology, environmentalist theology. Uh, when you don't actually believe that the Bible itself is normative, but has to be supplemented by a secular philosophy, you could just sort of gain a degree of credibility among many unsuspecting people by doing what Ardell says, sort of uh, making strong assertions and just sort of attaching Bible verses. And that's why a knowledge of the scriptures, but not just a knowledge of the scriptures, a knowledge of a coherent biblical theology, and I would add in addition to that a Christian worldview, um, theology shaping the way we view the world, is necessary. Never has there been a time in the history of the church, certainly I think in the 20th century, when it was more necessary for people to be more discerning uh, because of all of the false teachings. Of course, there's been false teachings almost from the beginning. I mean, Paul even warned about that. But today there's this sort of explosive multiplicity of false teachings. And wokeness theology is just an example of this theological syncretism. That's what makes it really dangerous. Why would a... Um we, we've seen some of our, our evangelical thought leaders or, or movement shakers in the last years all of a sudden um, repent of racism that they didn't know they had. And I can give you several examples. I think we can all know who they are. Why? Why now? What have they discovered that? And wh why, why is this infiltrating the church? You know, so nobody wakes up one day and Nobody wakes up one day and says, boy, everything's going great at church. I just want to come up with a new idea. You know, what problem are they trying to solve that the Bible isn't solving already? So I'm going to jump in here uh, and be really bold and say, yeah, I think I have an answer to that. I think it's called worldliness. 
uh, capitulating to the world spirit. I'd have a lot more respect for it had it happened in 1945 or 1876 or something like that. But I'm highly suspicious when people start to change the theology and become very apologetic at precisely the time that the culture is oppressing a particular issue. Uh, in the Word of God, Reformation and Revival doesn't happen that way. It happens when people turn directly to the Word of God and pour out their hearts before God and see that they have violated the law of God. So I would say in most of these cases, and I realize I'd be criticized for saying this, it's what Francis Schaeffer would call capitulation to forms of the world spirit. World spirit. It's just a form of worldliness under the guise of true repentance. So you see it as being... Um, we want the church to grow, and this is our way to get the church to grow, or we want to be liked by the culture. I think it's like, um, what is it? Uh, one of my friends says they want to sit at the cool table. You know, the evangelical cool table does these things, and if you really want to appeal to the culture today, then you have to break down barriers to that culture. And, of course, we should break down unbiblical barriers, but this is not one of them. I think this is just an example of worldliness. Um, and I, I believe that's behind. I'm not saying it's insincere, but I do believe it's worldly. And Eric, if I, Eric, if I may jump in here, um, I think what Ardell brought up about the issue of culture, and of course, um, Andrews addressed this as well, but it's important to recognize that in Scripture, culture is theological. Culture is religious. That's right. And, and That's right. this, and so the, the whole issue that um, Andrew was talking about, or that um, Ardell was talking about with respects to Galatians 2 and even in Acts 15, the issues there truly are theological, doctrinal, but they are also thereby cultural. You cannot, you cannot separate those two things, not according to Scripture, but what what is done in the West is the, the bifurcation of those two things. We, we disconnect those two things. And we somehow think that we have to connect those things to each other. Well, we don't. They're already connected. And then further, when you talk about how did evangelicals get to this point? Well, key to this is, is about hermeneutics. It's about interpretation of Scripture. You look at two texts in particular, in the Old Testament, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. The Old Testament is Deuteronomy 12. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, it's Romans 12. In, in both those texts, God warns us about not being invested too much in the non-Christian culture, in the culture outside the church, and looking yes. to that culture to tell us how to live our lives. Yes. Specifically, he told Old Testament Israel not to look to the other nations to uh, consider how they serve their gods, that we might do the same. You also you will note that in that, he didn't say, don't pay attention to how they serve their gods. He said, don't consider how they serve their gods, that you might do the same. Mm -hmm. The New Testament equivalent is Romans 12, where Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Evangelicals back in the 1940s decided that they were going to uh, engage the culture. They wanted a culture engaging uh, influence. They were coming out of, you know, 20 years previously, the Scopes Monkey Trials, uh, Darwinism, 
and and being made to look silly. You had a number of particular prominent intellectual evangelical men who decided to adopt approach to gospel ministry that would engage the culture. In itself, that by itself was not automatically bad. The problem becomes when your primary concern becomes is in trying to engage the culture. Because by definition, in order to do that, you have to begin to communicate something to the non-Christian on the non-Christian's terms. Well, by definition, now you are already sliding away from the gospel because the gospel has its own terms. God's word has its own terms. It has its own categories. In order to faithfully, biblically engage with the culture, you have to, you have to proclaim the gospel to the culture. You have to teach the doctrinal categories and the content to the culture. Well, of course, you're not talking about just culture in a nebulous sense. We're talking to people who are non-Christians. So it's vital that we recognize that what we've had is several generations of evangelical leaders who have been more concerned about how the culture thinks of them and in trying to influence the culture than it has about what Christ thinks of them. And I think in the end, Andrew's correct, it becomes an issue of worldliness. So a question for you, Dave, Do you, is, this, is this just a new, um, new examples of the seeker movement of 30 years ago, 20 years ago, where it was the culture demanded big buildings right. and entertainment, and now the culture demands um, that we re- that we become colorblind or we become right uh, affirming of everybody's personal affirmations and whatnot. Is that yes, I, I believe it is. I believe it is. I think, you know, when you, um, <laughs> when, when you're, when you are so concerned to influence people outside of the church, you, you become very sensitive to what the people outside of the church think of the church. Well, scripture is very clear that there is, um, there's a, there's an offensiveness to the gospel. And, and if you cannot tolerate being called offensive, well, then, then you're going to start making accommodations. And, um, that's, that's what's going on. But now it's gotten to the point though, that the culture has become it's, it's hostility to the gospel has become clearer. And, and now, now the, the antithesis um, between the Christian and the non-Christian is becoming clearer. So my question then, and maybe I'll, I'll ask Bob this. I'm going to ask a question, and then there was one that came in, and I'll ask that secondly. But, like, Bob, why are, are you and I and, and David, Ardell, and Andrew – and others here so concerned about this. I mean, aren't these just ideas that are kind of nebulous in the church? Or why do we why do we view these as piggybacking off of what David said? Why are these so pernicious to the gospel? What does it do to a church 
mm-hmm. when you begin to embrace these categories. Yeah, I think one of the things it does is it it is uh, it's another gospel, as uh, I think Andrew said. But what it does is it is all law and no gospel. Right. There is no forgiveness in this system, and so it binds people under a a certain kind of woke law that offers no no forgiveness no uh no true reconciliation uh it only it only offers or actually commands really a a submission and that you you're only you're only uh avenue is to try to do better try harder and that's all that's just all law no gospel and it's hopeless for people once they go down that path but it it feels good for some people at first and i'm i'm trying to think through why it does there's an appeal uh that people uh are drawn to a a guilt that is cast on them and they embrace it uh, and I don't know what has drawn them in to embrace it uh, so much without a hope in the end of having this guilt removed. Uh, and so it's a, it's a horrible thing. It's actually very, it's very cult-like. And I want to address wokeness as a cult, but it, it's very cult-like in the way it uses guilt as a manipulative tool over people. Uh, because they're always bound under this and never free from it. And so they're always under the the, the control of those who would uh, preach this to them. So any, any of the speakers want to comment on what Bob just said? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think that Bob is right. I believe that um, the appeal uh the appeal of this whole matter is at the baser elements of human nature. This entire system is is one that appeals to um, those those very basic sinful elements of human nature, including um, including a kind of self salvation. Uh, but it also, as Bob has indicated, there is no true forgiveness. It is always is always lurking out there in front of you. But it's impossible to uh, to receive and attain unto true forgiveness because you can't get rid of your whiteness, uh-huh. and and because you can't get rid of your whiteness, it's really a hopeless. Uh, enslavement uh, of the worst kind. Um, I think that I would also make the point, if I could um, come back to Andrew's point and David's point about worldliness, um, if I could just put it in slightly different terms, um, I fully agree with them, but if I just put it in slightly different terms uh, to help people get get the point, it's this worldliness of which they speak is nothing other than fearing humans more than fearing God. 
It's the, it's the very thing of which Paul speaks in Romans 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And, and when people, when ministers, um, and when, when others begin to embrace this, they are turning their eyes off away from God, and they are altogether way too, too concerned about how humans view them. And, and in order to placate the wrath and indignation of those who are visible, they turn to this and they acquiesce. But the wrath of the one who's not seen is the wrath that I'm concerned about. So my question would be related to that. There's a question that just came out. I'm going to start to ask application. Um, and again, I think as, as I hope we're seeing that there's always application, everything we're saying here, but specifically we want to turn it a little bit to the onus of tonight. And here's a question that said this, uh, somebody wrote this in. I recently heard a pastor preach a sermon on Matthew five, six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. The, the preacher turned this into a social justice sermon, even going so far as to say Jesus was a social justice warrior. If this was someone you knew and heard this sermon, or if it's in your church, what would you say or do to this person to respond to that? Well, that's homiletical malpractice. I mean, you look in Matthew chapter 5, it's the beginning of the so-called Sermon on the Mount. And if you read in our English Bibles, chapters 5 through 7, you'll find out uh, what the righteousness is. He talks about, oh, what? Eight, uh, 16, 20, something like that particular topics. I mean, everything from divorce to uh, watching your language, how we treat one another, that's the righteousness he's referring to. He's not referring to what is called today social justice. Uh, and that's kind of the danger that Ardell was pointing to, sort of importing, uh, sort of just standing up and making pronouncements. So taking a text and seeing the term righteousness and saying, well, obviously that refers to social justice. Uh, no, that actually has to arise out of the text and the context. This is another example of how not knowing the Word of God and not reading the Word of God carefully and not having a biblical theology can lead to disastrous results. And in this case, particularly in the case of a minister. Now, if I were you and there were a minister like that, I mean, obviously, if you're only a member of the church, go to go to him, maybe with another elder, another member with great humility, and say, could you justify this interpretation? of this text from the context of Matthew 5 through 7? In my view, that he can't, and if so, he needs to make a change. Uh, but it seems like, and I'm not sure, but he's got another social justice agenda. Well, have that agenda all you want, just don't import it into Matthew 5 through 7. Any other comments to that? Well, it's truly going to be difficult for the regular church member to approach pastor, um, depending on the educational level of the pastor and the background of that common church member. That common church member may feel quite inferior and, um, you know, lacking in, in being able to make any significant argument. Um, but I do think it's important that. Um, we recognize that that pastors can err 
um, it's important for um, the regular church member to recognize how within their particular congregation, um, where the disciplinary structure resides, where, where is accountability? Um, if you, if you have uh, accountability structure within your congregation, you need to work through that in order to challenge things that you are convinced are, are incorrect. Um, but clearly, Andrew is correct. Um, that text has nothing to do with social justice as it is defined today. And I might add that in particular, um, definitions of terms, definitions of concepts are crucial in discussions and debates with the teaching authorities in the church. Why, why should a person then be concerned if they're starting to hear this? I mean, what does it do to a church body? I think it, we may have already covered it a little bit, but you know, it's, again, like we said, you know, wh what is it going to do to the average church member who's sitting in the pew trust in the pulpit to hear things like this? How is it going to damage them? I think Bob talked to a certain degree about this, but why, why is it worth, is this just something we have a conversation about, or is this something we confront when we hear this? You need to confront it because it's a false gospel, just yeah. as the, the other men on the, on the call have mentioned. This is a false gospel, and it, it's critical to understand what the church is. The, the church is the body of Christ called out by God to be nurtured uh, and to be perfected through the preached word of God and the administration of the sacraments. There, there is something that is received. God's grace for life is received in the preached word and the administration of the sacraments in the corporate worship of the church. When you don't have the actual gospel being preached and correct biblical doctrine being preached, you are being fed poison. <laughs> you, you, you're, you, that kind of preaching will destroy a church. It, that group of people can continue to claim to be the church and continue to um, profess faith in Christ, but eventually that kind of doctrine is, is going to poison the church. So it, I mean, this is for all the marbles. This, this is exactly what uh, Paul and the other apostles are talking about in the New Testament when they deal with false teachers couple questions then related to what we just addressed. Um, uh, let's see where, where they just came up. Okay. Okay. Here's one um, question. How can um, we converse um, or relate with the culture of our time on this issue with the posture of Paul in first Corinthians? It's not first Corinthians 20, first Corinthians two, I think that is to the Jew. I became a Jew. To those outside the law, I went outside the law, et cetera, et cetera, without compromising the terms of the gospel, as David just pointed out. Well, that's, that's the question. Defines, right? it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's contextualization, right? That's a question of practical apologetics and evangelism. I, as some of the other men here, I tend to fall into the school of 
broad influence of Cornelius Van Til and others like him, presuppositional, his point is that the point of contact is that we're all created in the image of God, and even unbelieving people created in God's image do possess the truth, though they suppress it. Nonetheless, it's inscribed on their nature. So we can speak to them and speak in terms of the Word of God and give them a loving indictment against their sin, not in any harsh and unkind way, but um, indict them, and they know that it's true, and we trust the Holy Spirit to open their hearts. What we can't do, Van Til pointed out, and I think Paul would have agreed with him, is try to find some uh, epistemological agreement, sort of an area of neutral ground on which we say, I'll sort of surrender my Christian convictions, and maybe you set aside for a moment your woke or whatever convictions, and let's sort of talk on a neutral ground. Well, according to the Bible, there is no neutral ground. So really what we do is we sort of trust the image of God, the Imago Dei, in the unbeliever and the work of the Holy Spirit as we share the gospel and share the truth. If he wants to talk about wokeness, or she, let's talk about wokeness. What does the Word of God say about it? But we have to insist on the truth of the Word of God. And they know in their heart of hearts, they know in their heart of hearts this truth, no matter what they acknowledge, because it's been impressed on them, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So in my view, that's sort of a practical application of a very good question, apologetic question. If I may uh, step in after that and, and take, um, take simply another aspect of what Paul is saying here. I think that, I think that Andrew's right about that. But also we can add this, that this passage, the passage I think that is being referred to as 1 Corinthians 9, uh, where Paul says, to the Jews I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I become like the one, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Um, and to those without the law I become like those without, as without the law. In other words, uh, Andrew's right. This is apologetic and evangelistic, um, uh, an evangelistic and apologetic posture. But the, but the passage is often used by, um, by people to make the point and make the argument that anything goes, when, of course, Paul isn't saying that. He's not saying that at all. What he is saying is this. And once again, this reinforces the point that I made earlier, that the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles was cultural. And... And the point to reinforce the point that also that uh, David was making earlier, where the gospel goes, a new culture is birthed. Wherever the gospel goes, culture is transformed. The gospel bears within itself the birthing capacity of a culture, which of course is exactly why Andrew's uh, whole mission is, uh, is cultural. It's, it's not as though he's somehow off doing his own thing. No, he's doing the very, the very work of the gospel in seeking to transform culture. So that the point that Paul is making then is this. To the Jews, I become like a Jew. I am a Jew. <laughs> and I know how Jews live. And so to the Jews, when I, go to the, when I go ministering among the Jews, I'm not going to eat ham sandwiches. And I'm going to wash my hands according to the, the policies and protocol that I grew up with. But when I'm with Gentiles, 
I'm not going to eat kosher. I'm not going to do the things of a, that are of the kosher tradition and culture. I'm going to I'm going to conduct myself among them as a Gentile, but as a Gentile Christian. So clearly, Paul is not making the case that anything goes. He's making the point that when we're ministering to people of a culture. So when I've, when I've been to India four times, when I go to India, I've gone to India, and I've adapted myself to the culture as much as I can possibly do so as to make the gospel appealing to them, but I'm not compromising. I'm not compromising the gospel. I'm simply making cultural adjustments to make it clear to them that I that that the gospel is the gospel is transcultural because where it goes it brings its own culture and and we need to restore to the church that fact all the way from all the way from how we deal with babies to how we sing and how we speak to one another and how we dress i mean it is not i mean i could i could i could become i could i pre- could preach several sermons on this we have become so sloppy in the church we look like sloven pigs yeah it's it's pathetic when you go to church and you see people roll people roll into church as if they just rolled out of bed i mean right. we are meeting the king of kings when we go to church we are coming into the presence of the almighty god and if we're not if we're not prepared to meet the king of kings and ha- and have an audience with the king of kings then we ought not to be pre- present in church certainly not dressed the way we are certainly not approaching the way we are there's nothing casual about this this is a sacred moment that the congregation has to embrace i'm going to um i'm going to have to leave it there because otherwise i will uh <laughs> I'll steal this show, and I have no interest in doing that. Bob Dahlberg, yeah, like to add anything so far? Yeah, um, you know, I, I guess I think as as wokeness comes into a church, it will only end up dividing. I mean, it has a outward uh, appeal that it somehow is going to unite people, uh, but it will only separate people according to their ethnicities their culture and and so it it has no no hope for the church in that sense to unite it and so when it comes into your church if you see it uh your church will become more divided if the if the pastors bring it in or if the pastors allow it to come in it it will uh, destroy it eventually it's yeah bob is exactly right if if a husband and wife, for example, if my wife and I, if we dwell on the things that differ between us, it's going to divide us and divorce is, eventual, is going to eventuate. A marriage is not a successful marriage unless it is dwell, unless the two dwell upon the things that unite. And the same thing is true in these issues, as long as we f- focus on the things that 
differ, we're going to be divided. And the, the whole, this whole movement has gone under different names and different terms that have been featured. So for example, multiculturalism. There's this, this whole worldview is not interested in multiculture. It's interested in a uniculture. It's not interested in diversity. It's interested in uniformity. I mean, and if you don't, if you don't subscribe to these things, well, then you're out. And that is the division. And people hate division. So that's another factor that, that plays into why it is that people embrace this. People loathe division. I loathe division. But, I'm, but I love Christ more than I, more than I loathe division. Yes. And so, so that's, what we, that's what we have to feature. The, the, the love for Christ must overcome this, this kind of divisiveness that is coming into the church. And, you know, I mean, I know of pastors who are happy that people have gone from their churches. They regard it as a purging. And that's a sad, sad thing. No, it's not a purging. It's a, it's a, uh, the, the good folks are leaving because they're mm. being driven out. Um, here's a question. Uh, and I'm trying to get to some of the ones that people are asking here on the side. Thank you for answering, asking these. I'll try to get to as many of them as I can. I recently read a book regarding um, understanding the minor, I think that's minor prophets, in which the author emphasized social justice anytime the terms righteousness and justice were used in conjunction with each, with each other. Okay, let me say that again. Reading the Minor Prophets in which the author emphasized social justice termed together anytime the terms righteousness and justice were used in conjunction with each other. Do these two terms relay the idea of social justice as it's understood today? The short answer is no, but I think we need to elaborate on that. Uh, in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, those terms are virtually synonymous. There is a problem, I think I pointed out last time, Eric, with that even that sort of moniker, social justice. I mean, all justice is social. If you're living on a desert island, you don't need any justice. Justice involves rules where people have to address one another. And the fact is, the Old Testament is filled uh, with justice. I mean, uh, the Mosaic Law, probably 80% of it addresses not one's heart attitude toward God, although that, of course, is the center of everything, but how we're to, to treat one another in the covenant community. The same is true in the New Covenant, in Paul's and Peter's and John's writings, for example. So that's not the issue. Of course, the Word of God governs a society, uh, but it's not left-wing social justice, uh, which is essentially the notion that there is no social problem for which increased political power uh, is inappropriate. Uh, that is largely at the root of the social justice notion. There is a social problem, real or perceived, and therefore we need political legislation. The Christian approach is, there's a social problem, what is the sin involved, what can the individual do and repent, the family do and repent, the church do and repent, and individual Christians do to solve this problem. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not the way social justice looks at the issue. There is a radical cent political centralizing behind the notion of social justice. That's not the biblical answer. That's not how justice is conceived in society. There is a role for the state, by the way. But compared to today, it's a very minimal role. 
uh, suppressing external unrighteousness and specific what we would call uh, criminal acts. So one thing you can't do is see the term justice in the Bible or righteousness and simply import into that into that language the notion of modern social justice. Or do uh, do any of you gentlemen know, or have, maybe you put it together, um, a chart uh, with some bullet points of biblical justice and social justice? Something that the average person in the pew could could look at and say, oh. You know, I, I see that this is really what biblical justice is. It's not what the the culture is touting as social justice. Um, maybe is there something like that? I've seen a couple of those. Unfortunately, I didn't save them on my computer, so I might yeah. just perhaps go looking for them. But that would be very valuable for sure. If anybody out there wants to start that, um, <laughs> we would be happy to promote it uh, or or work on it. So that, that maybe would be a good, a good summary, kind of a talking point thing, Bob, you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Because, you know, like, like Andrew said, the, the term itself is uh, appealing social justice on a surface level. It's, it's hard to disagree with in a sense. Um, but when you understand what it means, which most, most people don't at first, at least. Um, then you realize, you know, how, um, how much an error it is compared to biblical justice. Um, but you have to do a lot of work to get people there. Eric, I might add that, well, first of all, I would agree totally with Andrew on that point that all justice is social. I think some, one of the things that's important perhaps to uh, ask people is why they feel the need to modify the term justice with the term social. That's right. When, when in fact it's that's a redundancy it in fact it points out the intellectual vacuousness of that entire movement right away secondly uh god's righteousness and justice those are the foundations of his throne according to the scriptures the primary locus the primary place where righteousness and justice are administrated is within the church, within the covenant community of God's people. Uh, the prophets spoke to the people of God. When they indicted the people of God for failing to uphold righteousness and justice and mercy, they were faulting them for the way they treated one another, first and foremost and primarily. They were not focused on how the Old Covenant community was dealing with outsiders or with the surrounding nations. It's not that that was irrelevant. Obviously, the promise to Abraham is that God would bless Abraham and make him a blessing to all the nations. But God was going to do that in his time. What we have seen over and over again uh, over the last several decades is this idea that the church's primary focus has to be on fixing the world. Wrong. The world will get fixed when the church functions the way the church is supposed to and first and foremost focuses on itself, getting its doctrine straight, getting its practice straight within itself, 
then that's that culture that's being developed and formed. And that culture will spread as it is a, a pleasing aroma and used by the Holy Spirit to bring people in. But the primary attention that the church is supposed to have is not first and foremost towards the world itself. And so, but, but this is what's gotten twisted. The righteousness and justice that, that has to be dealt with and needs to be seen is first and foremost in the church. In particular, you think about the, the way the poor come into play here. The poor in the Old Testament are primarily the poor within the covenant community, not the poor of the whole world. So th these are things that, that need to be recalibrated, as it were. Very good. Thank you. If, if I may it, just add, go ahead. if I may just add, um, to add the adjective social to justice is to do nothing less and damaging than to add this, the word, the adjective social to gospel. Mm -hmm. The gospel right. has its social dimensions. Right. Justice has its social dimensions, but to, but to then use an adjective and say, speak of social gospel or social justice is to do a serious injury to the very, to the very nature of justice and to the very nature of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At base level of justice is fairness and equity. And these things yes. create division and inequity and unfairness and partiality. Okay, so I want to I want to um, a little I want to twist it a little bit because David brought up something that I think is is related here. And the questions that have come in, we've seen now in the last four months, and let's say in the church in America in general, we've seen, according to the government, stopping worship, public worship, together, physically because of pandemic threat. Then in the middle, in late May, there was this big woke movement that reared its head again. Now we're seeing masking mandates. We're seeing um, uh, the questions about government, uh, the questions about do we have any authority? Does the government have authority or not? What is the relation? Is there any between the pastor of the church who goes woke and the church or pastor who submits to the government in all things, seemingly, or who, <laughs> or who reacts against John MacArthur for what he, what Grace Community did the other day, or any of us that have done that too. Well, I, I think, say, no, right. go ahead. I would just, just brief comment. I would just say it's the same suspects right. in both camps. Yeah. yeah, and I think this takes us back to Ardell's point about fear of man and being more concerned about what those outside of the church think of us rather than being concerned about what Christ thinks of us. I also think that what you have are precisely because you have men who are very oriented towards what the culture thinks, they frankly miss what's really going on in the culture. They, they, they don't recognize the hostility that the unregenerate mind has towards God. They do not recognize the hostility 
of non-Christian culture to Christian culture. And therefore, the, they don't recognize the hostility of the, of the government towards the church. Um, what I think we're seeing is uh, a combination of two things. One, men who have been, who have simply capitulated to the culture. But then secondly, um, some who are just simply naive, who do not know history, who, who have not paid enough attention to what scripture says uh, about the enemy, <laughs> about the, the, the hostility that non-Christian and non-Christian culture will have towards the church. Um, and so what you end up with are men who, who want to appease. Um, they, they don't recognize the moment we're in, frankly. Yeah, I agree with both Bob and David, and I think just to elaborate, what unites both of these is, on the one hand, you have the capitulation to contra-biblical prohibitions uh, of uh, public worship uh, on the part, obviously, of politicians, and that capitulation on the part of the church. And then on the other hand, you have capitulation to this uh, pressing worldliness, this wokeness that is just sort of overwhelming the culture. In both cases, it is a false unbiblical submission. And I, Ardell's made it two or three, uh, said this in two or three, uh, two or three times, that uh, it really involves the fear of man. Think about it. In both cases, it's really the fear of man. One case, it's the fear of the civil magistrate or what people will think about resisting the civil magistrate. And on the other hand, the fear about what uh, being accused of, uh, of racism or something else because you don't buy into the wokeness agenda. Uh, but on both cases, it's, it's a form of unbiblical capitulation. So I think Bob's right and David's right. These really two are two sides of the same coin. Uh, recently, earlier this week, uh, John Harris, who does um, uh, worldview conversations, and if you've seen his videos, younger guy does a really nice job, did a great, a very helpful, sad, but very helpful video on Jonathan Lehman and Nine Marks and how first going woke, they lost their moral authority to see clearly on some of the governmental issues about masking and everything else. Uh, he does some really good work on just one leads to another. I think that's what we're saying to all of you guys out there. And I think you see that is liberalism works in that when we capitu when we when we go soft in one area, when we refuse to take moral authority, we'll do that in the next issue that comes right. to press in on us. We lose all moral high ground because we're so we become so guilt ridden that we don't you lose clarity and authority. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm going to mention a book again. Uh, I mentioned, I think, last time, Francis Schaeffer's The Great Evangelical Disaster from 1984. He has a haunting line in there. He points out the very thing you're saying and predicting it. And he says, the problem is once we accommodate, we just continue to do that. And he says, accommodation leads to accommodation, which leads to accommodation. The Great Evangelical Disaster. I hope you can get it and read it. Uh, it's not in print, but you ought to be able to get a copy by Francis Schaeffer. Okay, then a related question to this, and I think kind of the one that is on the minds of some, most of the people in here, I, I suspect, have some real concerns. Some of them, it's very close to home within their own church. Um, do you leave a church? Um, or when do you leave a church? Or how do you leave a church? Is this a serious enough issue where 
you could say, well, I don't agree with the pastor, but I've got a good small group and we're going to kind of hang in there. Or what is the right way to take a stand on this? Is this worth dividing over? Is this a serious enough issue? Or how, how do you do that? I guess maybe that those are a lot of questions together. Well, you're right. Those are a lot of issues. Um, and every situation is going to be different. Uh, you've got different people. Um, the variables are numerous. Um, in an attempt to sort of bring all of those together, uh, I think what's critical is that you have to be sure that, that what you're dealing with is something that is at the level of this, what amounts to apostate wokeness. Um, you, you need to have heard numerous sermons that are going down this road. Um, you need to have honest, frank conversations with the leadership of the church. Um, it's important to be honest and clear yourself uh, about what you think is going on and how you feel about it. Um, we, we are getting ready to receive uh, a new family into our congregation precisely because they left a congregation mm. that has been given over to this cultural accommodation. Um, there is nothing more important than corporate worship on Sunday morning. There, that is the vital life-giving blood of every Christian. If you are not sitting under the faithful preaching of the word of God, um, you need to find it as soon as possible. Yes. And, and there are churches out there. Um, and frankly, people may need, the, the time may come, where people may need to recognize that they're going to have to travel fairly large distances to find the faithful preaching of the gospel. Yeah. Um, we just had a visitor ourselves this last Sunday. Uh, the gentleman came 40 miles out of town because there's nothing in his town um, that's faithful. So these are things that in our time, this is the sacrifice that many of us may have to make. I think that if I may take a slightly different tack, but I because I agree with everything that David has just said, it seems to me that we are at in a moment here in history, distinctive for me, unique for unique for probably all of us, but it seems to me that we're in a situation that is ripe for planting new churches. Yes, mm. like the like. 40 miles away from David's church, there should be a church there. And, and I think that, I think that if COVID, the COVID virus has done anything, it has in large measure exposed the, the fragility and the, and I dare I say even bankruptcy of mega church movement. Yeah. I think that Andrew, I like Andrew's terminology about this anti-social distancing. This is, I, I've, I've taken that up instead of calling it social distancing. It's anti-social distancing. The body of Christ is 
was formed by our Lord to be together. And, and there is, uh, to reiterate a point, and just put a slightly different terms on it, a point that David was making earlier about the, the importance of being under the preaching of the word. There, that is the presence of our Lord among us. That is the presence of the Lord among us. That is the presence of the Lord among us when we are participating and partaking of communion. The Lord did not do these things merely to be, merely to create symbols for us. The symbol is in itself a ministration of grace to us. And the preaching of the word is a ministration of grace to us. And John captures something of this when he speaks like this is have you ever thought about why does he say this in first john 4 no one has ever seen god i mean why does he say that and then he follows it up with this but if we love one another god is among us and his love is made complete in us in other words yes he's invisible but he's he is really there. Yes, yes. And we must, we, this, this, to get back to a term that um, Andrew used earlier, the essence of worldliness is to be captivated by what is seen. Yes. And abandon that which is unseen. Right. Godliness does exactly the opposite. Godliness recognizes that what is seen is but the shadow lands of heaven, of the heavenly realities. And by that, I'm not at all suggesting a kind of Neoplatonic thing. <laughs> I'm suggesting that God created, the, God created this universe to reflect the realities and the ordering of the unseen realm. You, we violate the principles in this created order. We are violating the very things of God. Yeah. And, and we need to get back to recognize that when we are gathered together under the preached word and, under the, uh, and at the table of the Lord, as well as the font of baptism, whatever we believe on that, that these are the means of grace that God has given to us, and to abandon those, as the church has done for months, is to abandon the Lord himself. We need to, we need to plant churches. We need to become bold and confident and recognize that people need to be among one another and under the preaching of the word. Yeah, I'll agree with all that. I'd like to add that the Lord is among his people in a way when they meet in public worship on the Lord's day that he is not with them and cannot be with them at other times. I think that's fundamental to understand. Uh, the meaning of the church, Amen. what we call an English church, ecclesia, there's some dispute about whether that's even the best translation. It's the assembly. It's the community. Uh, there are no substitutes for it. It's corporeal. You can actually touch people. Paul would say you can actually greet them with a holy kiss. You can touch them. Uh, and if there's no substitute for that, a Zoom meeting is not a substitute for that. What we're doing tonight is great. It's not church. No. We're not doing church tonight. 
Um, so if you to church is the assembly, and this is where a lot of the sort of evangelical pious gushiness, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. sounds so pious, is wrong, such that, well, the church, it's okay if we're not meeting. The church needs to be the church in the world. But there's no such thing in the, as a disassembled church. That's correct. And we need to act as Christians faithfully wherever we are on the basis of the church. But church, ecclesia, is assembly and community. And if you don't have that, let me say it boldly, and Ardell just made this point, you can't have church. It's not a church if you can't meet in a visible corporeal way on the Lord's day. I think that needs to be stressed loudly in these times. Uh, I think we've delved, and I won't go into this, but I think we really have developed a lot of Gnostic views about what is what yes. the church is, that the church sort of in our mind or the church through computers, there's no such thing. That's correct. Eric, I might just follow up on that. What Andrew and Ardell have just said is precisely why I affirm that what we have are so many men who are naive and unbiblical, and they do not understand the moment we're in when a governor says that churches cannot meet, that they're not essential while Planned Parenthood's essential and liquor stores are essential and, 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 and all these other things that are, are essential, but, but churches can't meet. That is satanic. That's right. Okay? That's satanic. That, that is the attempt to, to nullify the church, period, to do away with the church. Um, any man who is ordained to preach the gospel um, and lead God's people ought to stand up against that with the greatest amount of force that he can muster um, and, and to, to, to acquiesce or to quibble about that and, and, to, and to think that there's some justification for that is completely misguided. It's, 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 com- it's to be completely ignorant of so many issues on so many levels. Amen. Bob. Yeah. Do you have anything you'd like to add over the last uh, few minutes? Um, a lot of notes and uh, thoughts here. Right. Uh, I'm just wondering what's the what's the end game? What do any of you gentlemen see an end game in in two years? You know, it, it seems like culture cycles, you know, through, and it and it seems like that cycle's accelerating um, on on whatever the crises or the issues are that come and go, and then those come into the church, and you know, Schaefer used to say that tell me what the church is doing. I think he said, or tell me what the culture is doing today. And I'll tell you what the church is doing in five years. And, and I think that's probably, uh, almost equal now. Um, the, the, the church is trying to keep up with the culture, but, but where do you think this will end? Uh, or, or what's the next, uh, issue behind it? Or is there one that you see behind it? Well, I know we're running off on time, Eric, so I'll yeah. just answer my, my uh, I'll answer real quickly. Uh, I think that what Ardell said is right. I think we're seeing a great division. And uh, though uh, it's sad to see division, this probably is good to see because the division was already under the surface. The starting of new churches, 
the identification mm -hmm. of men of God who are true, genuine men of God who will stand up for the truth. I think this bodes well for the future. There may be some times of difficulty and persecution, but I believe the church will come out on the other end stronger. True church, the true people of God, will come out stronger in the end. Amen. With that, everybody, I think we're going to draw to a conclusion. We do want to stay on time. Um, kind of a cluster of last questions that we had were, were uh, future resources. Um, I think, David, if Gonzalez, if you and I can try to work on um, the follow-up to this. Um, after I officially close, um, and I'm going to ask Bob to close in prayer. Bob, you okay doing that? Yes. Um, after I do that, stay on, and we'll do just some final, how do we communicate? How do we let you know when the next one of these is going to happen? Um, do you have any follow-up? A um, couple of things I just want to add on this is there's a bunch of book recommendations in there. We'll try to summarize those. Um, I would say for any of us, um, uh, you who are, who are going, man, how do I, where do I start reading? This is so dangerous. How do I get this? Um, friend Ardell, David, and Andrew on Facebook, and they do a lot of reading for you, and then they summarize it really well. Um, for example, last two meetings, um, it was recommended Herbert Schlossinger. Is that the guy's name? Schlossberg. Schlossberg. That guy. Idols for Destruction. <laughs> yes. Mr. David Smith has taken it upon himself to read and Facebook for the rest of us on it. So if you want to get a summary <laughs> of that, as David reads in real time, uh, you can start there. And uh, I would just encourage you guys to follow these guys on Facebook. They're doing a bunch of things every day. And I think at least it's going to get you some good summary statements. And also, I would I would say this for um, myself, too. It's a great evangelism or apologetics tool for other people to show them why do we care about these things? And here's mm -hmm. some some resources that we can start with. Mm -hmm. With that, Bob, close us in prayer. And thank you all for coming tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we count it a great privilege to be able to call upon you as our Father. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we are uh, a people that you have purchased with the very blood of Jesus Christ. You have uh, made us, Lord, your own, and into a new family, uh, a new people. And Lord, we we pray that you would help us as we navigate these difficult days to uh, be faithful to our Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would grant great discernment to your church, both to pastors and to people, uh, Lord, to understand the times, Lord. And we, we pray that you would help us to not be deceived, Lord, or to deceive, Lord. Uh, we, we just pray that you would, Lord, we just think of some of these men that we have uh, seen as faithful men, Lord, in, in the past, and yet we wonder, Lord, how and where and why are they going this way? And so we just pray that you would grant uh, repentance, Lord. Uh, and, and you would recover them, Lord, again, as, as Paul, uh, Lord, recovered Peter and Barnabas and James. And, and so would you not, Lord, do that as well? Uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, prosper your church. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would uh, plant new churches as we've talked tonight. Uh, we pray you would give courage, Lord, to uh, the pastors, Amen. that uh, they would be uh, faithful in preaching the word and and fearless, Lord, as they face the world, and that their people as well might see that and, and they might take courage. Yeah. And so, Lord, we thank you that uh, 
Lord, we, we know that even though when the foundations seem to be uh, crumbling around us and destroyed, that you're still on your throne. And so we, we look up and we hope and uh, we're confident, Lord. And so we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brethren, we have met to worship and